0: From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a podcast about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. And I'm Brittany Luce. So Brittany, something we don't really get a chance to talk about that often, I feel like we used to, Mm -hmm. is what it's like to live away from the place where you grew up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like, like if you know me, know me. Okay, who? We talking (laughs) about other people, not me? Basically. Okay. Like, being from Memphis and also my roots in Louisiana, they're all such a core part of my identity. Mm-hmm. It's in the way I talk. It's yes. in the music I listen to. Yes. The food I love. It's yes. It's everything. And living in New York, it kind of challenges you in all these ways, like big and small. All the things that you loved about where you came from become these, like, billboards that you're different You know Mm -hmm. your accent is weird. You Mm -hmm. walk too slow. You know people don't really talk to each other. I I try to speed it up. (laughs) Eve thinks I walk fast. You know, but it's not all bad. But it can be hard to like really stand firm in who you are. Yeah, I
1: would definitely say so.
0: But I recently met a person who has really worked through how to be Southern in New York, and that is food writer Nicole A. Taylor. It was actually you who told me about her.
1: Yes, it's true. It was me who told you about her. I. Talk about her as often as I can. You do. Like she, you know, she's got this amazing cookbook, and she writes for all these different publications. She's an amazing food writer. She had a podcast. She has. I, I follow her on Instagram. She made some really good breakfast potatoes last week. <laughs> Anytime you want to have me over, let me know. Clearly. I'll be there. Yes, Nicole is. She's it.
0: Yes, and her cookbook, the Up South Cookbook. Chasing Dixie in a Brooklyn Kitchen, it talks so much about this. Nicole moved to Brooklyn from her hometown of Athens, Georgia. And when she got here, she kind of struggled to figure out how she fit in. And she worked through that process by recreating the classic recipes that she learned in the South and leaning into the flavors from people and cultures that she was kind of interacting with here in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, no, she did—she had this mac and cheese recipe that was, like, based on, I think, her family's, but she added, like, different cheeses that you don't normally see, like Manchego mm-hmm. and Gruyere. Uh, oh, she also had a collard green recipe that she did in, like, a Japanese style <laughs> that was very simple but very delicious. Yeah. Uh, she also made, like, a New York cheesecake recipe, like, that was based on her aunt's
0: red velvet cake recipe. It's like, you know, it's like a mix. Yeah. It's like a mix. A little update. And all of that is why I thought that Nicole would be the perfect person for our segment where we ask friends of the show, what food exemplifies blackness to you? Mm. That's right. Nicole A. Taylor is the latest guest to give us her to-go play. For Nicole, the blackest food was at an old-school soda fountain and ice cream shop named Brooklyn Pharmacy. She was kind enough to leave her adorable new baby to meet me there very early in the morning. And she showed up with these fresh-ass gold pretzel earrings that just screamed, Oh, no, you love, love food like it's in your jewelry. So... The owner let us in a little bit before the shop opened, and I gotta say, walking in, it just felt like we were walking into a time machine. Like, the design of Brooklyn Pharmacy is this mix of 50s soda fountains, like in the movie Back to the Future, Mm. and an equally old apothecary. Like the one that actually occupied the space for decades before Brooklyn Pharmacy moved in. There's like a white pressed tin ceiling. There's jars with cakes and treats. There are 50s era cooking products, old receipt books, typewriters, bottles that held what I'm sure are tonics or or tonic-like substances. (laughs) And just pictures from the time. It's just such a cool looking spot. And for Nicole, the look of Brooklyn Pharmacy actually reminds her of all the shops she used to visit with her mom when she went to downtown Athens. Hmm. So we went into Brooklyn Pharmacy, and we got a table in the back and started chatting. And I had a hunch that her blackest dish was going to be something sweet. And so my stomach settled in for some breakfast dessert. Breakfast dessert? Yes, it is a thing. Okay. And she told me what we would be ordering today. A Mr. Potato Head Sunday, her favorite. Right.
2: Hands down. All
0: right. I mean, that's a You, you hyping it up. So I've I'm
2: this like, Just like this whole space, it takes me back. Mm-hmm.
0: We should order a couple. Let's do it. All right. Not long after we ordered, the owner of Brooklyn Pharmacy started to approach our table with a plate. My body was ready.
2: So I'm looking at this. I should describe this. Yes, big please. Big hunk of just plain vanilla ice cream. And then you have homemade whipped cream, which is the best. It's not that fake shit, that cool whip. You don't play that? No. Chunky peanut butter. And then we have potato chips, North Fork potato chips, which are made in Long Island.
0: Mm-hmm. And are these just these are just plain potato chips, right? These
2: are plain. And they're kettle potato chips. So you know how the kettle has an extra crunch and you have all the ones that are like bent over and you go. Yeah. yeah. So the ice cream is in the middle. Top on top of the ice cream, we have whipped cream, and then she's drizzled caramel around it. And then you have chips on the side. What else am I missing? That's on here. That's it. It's just that simple, and it's a Mr. Potato Head.
0: Yeah. So I I, I do really want to try it. Just you
2: gotta it get it before it gets too soggy because yeah. you gotta have the texture of the chips.
0: So are you scooping the chip? I'm just I I I, I was I I ice simple. cream first. Okay.
2: A little whipped cream and then the, the potato chips. Oh my God. Right? Mm. You feel me?
0: Yeah. Also, this is really good. That ice cream, the vanilla ice cream. was. Whew. I've never had ice cream and chips. I put chips on a lot of things. Just on sandwiches. I've never put in ice cream. What's cool is like, you just start out with this like real punch of like, man, this is really good vanilla ice cream. But then you get the like the subtle additions of like the the peanut butter and the peanut butter has a little bit of like that kind of like saltiness to it. But then you also get the crunch of the chips. So to have all this happening in my mouth in a dessert, it's nice. I'm not going to lie. Thank you. So Brooklyn Pharmacy created the Mr. Potato Head Sunday years ago for a celebration of Father's Day. Which I don't know the chips maybe I guess.
1: I mean, I mean, I, I my dad loves chips, but also I think that like chips, peanut butter, ice cream, like those are all foods that I think like if that people associate with people who like don't know how to cook. Like like a lot of people think dads <laughs> don't know how to cook, and it's like okay, we're gonna eat <laughs> chips, ice cream, maybe yeah. peanut butter sandwich. You know, you, you know, I can see it.
0: Well, that doesn't apply to this dad, but when Nicole tried it, it took on a meaning to her that was probably a lot deeper than the owners originally intended. Those ingredients were pretty special to her because they reminded her of her
2: childhood. So I grew up in Athens, Mm -hmm. which is like a small college town, 60 miles outside of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Grew up in, you know, blue collar family. I I didn't realize like, oh, we live in paycheck to paycheck. (laughs) Um, I grew up, you know, really feeling like I didn't miss out on certain things. Mm And the things that kind of always were in the house that I learned how to cook first were potatoes. Yeah. So I have this, like, dumb, crazy love affair with potatoes. So when I would get hungry, the first thing I would do is fry up some potatoes. Mm. I became the master of of, of Potatoes. That was your
0: dish in the house?
2: That was, that was that was my dish, period, for myself. I grew up as the only child, so I started cooking really early. I grew up in the house with my aunts and, and with my mom. And I remember, you know, a lot of kids were into, like, Snicker bars. I was always the fancy girl that, mm-hmm. like, wanted the fancy chips. I really didn't care about the candy, like, lemon heads and mm-hmm. Boston baked beans.
0: That's where we differ.
2: I wanted to go and, like, buy the cinnamon rolls and make them myself and get ice cream. And I always wanted to fancy up my desserts and not just have candy. Um, but the potatoes bring back a lot, a lot to me. Because it's like, potatoes are kind of poverty food, What you say?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you got a sack of potatoes. I always feel like you can make a whole meal. And I, who doesn't love a, cr- a good crunchy potato chip? Oh, how did I forget? It has peanut butter on it. Yeah. Duh. I forgot about the peanut it's butter. It's chunky peanut butter, too. It is chunky peanut butter. Peanut butter means so much I always keep two jars of peanut butter at home. Always. like you Always. Have it. I have two jars of peanut butter. I probably have some kind of peanuts multiple times a week, either in a smoothie or peanuts on a salad. I love freaking peanuts. I mean, I grew up where it was so much a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to summer camp, and I would have, after we ran out of lunch meat or mm-hmm. sandwich meat, my aunt and mom would make me take a peanut butter sandwich, and I used to get so pissed because I'm like, oh, I got to take a choke sandwich again. <laughs> Why
0: you call it a choke sandwich?
2: Because <clears throat> I didn't <laughs> really like jelly on it, and I felt like when it went down, it was like, I was like choking. So, my whole life, peanuts have been in the background, and when I moved to New York, all these things that I actually tried to run away from in terms of food, they all came back. hmm I didn't realize how much these foods kind of, like, remind me of home, remind me of what it means to um, persevere. When I moved to New York City, everything about the South, like, came rushing back to me in terms of food, right? The stuff I took for granted, the cookouts, mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, the picnics, the barbecues, the family Christmas gatherings, anything that kind of had food at the center... I didn't realize that everyone doesn't do that. I kind of uh, subconsciously started recreating them. Mm -hmm.
0: So much of the book or just your approach to cooking in general seems to kind of hinge on that, um, this move to to New York or kind of the move from the South. What was that transition really like for you?
2: It was tough. When I first moved here, I I felt so lost. Mm -hmm. You know, as I'm talking to you now, it's the sadness that comes over me. Mm -hmm. I had to figure out, like, Who I was going to be in New York City. Was I going to be the girl from the South or I was going to be a girl like so many other Southerners I see that erase Mm -hmm. being from the South because I see so many people. But there's nothing in their presence that reminds me Mm -hmm. that they're from the South. Nothing in their voice, nothing in what they're eating, how they look what they're wearing. And it kind of breaks my heart a little bit mm-hmm. because I know the sacrifices of so many people that came from the South mm-hmm. and moved to the North to survive, to literally survive. They had to strip their southernness away. And I just said, I'm going to be Southern, 100%. I'm going to keep talking flat. I'm going to keep using the vernacular and not erase it. And when I do that, even now, things are so much better for me. Um... To me, it's just a deeper responsibility of being who I am in New York City. No,
0: I I understand exactly what you're saying. I mean, you come here and, like, initially it it seems jarring for other people that you are so Southern, you (laughs) know? And so at first you're like, well, am I I doing something wrong? Am I too Southern? Like, I didn't even think I was that country. Uh, Exactly. But, you know, New York in general is just full of so many different people. You know, everybody's from somewhere else. And, you know, the city works best. When you do own that original place that you come from, one
2: hundred percent, one hundred percent. When you own, I mean, you know, I hate to go back to this Sunday, but if we took took this Sunday for real, we took it out of this place, we took it out of this neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. This is a neighborhood where people you see famous people walking down the street. This ain't yeah. we ain't in the hood. Yeah, <laughs> we're we we're, we're in a affluent part of Brooklyn. We took this Sunday out and we put this Sunday in bed style. Uh-huh. This would not be considered. Fancy. Mm-hmm. It would be considered slightly southernish yeah. and very black and kind of hoodish, yeah. right? What it's almost mean? like a poverty Sunday, right? <laughs> it's like a poverty Sunday.
0: That idea she's getting it really hits home for me. Whether she's at a fancy Brooklyn ice cream shop, her apartment in Bed Stuy, or in Athens, Georgia. Those ingredients mean something to her. That's really important. Nicole is proud to eat a poverty Sunday, just like she's proud to be Southern.
1: It's really beautiful. It's kind of nice to have something like that that just encapsulates all the little things that remind you of home.
0: Yeah, like honestly, I'm still looking for that myself. Whether it's the right type of barbecue or catfish, or no mm-hmm, catfish. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm hopeful though that I'll find my own Mr. Potato Head Sunday. There's, there's one out there for me. After the break, Brittany tells a story about a little-known woman from history who had the freshest collection of wigs and even better comebacks.
1: All right, Eric. What's up? <sighs> Welcome back. Thanks. Okay, so Eric, I wasn't saying welcome back to you, I was saying welcome I was back to say, listener. I've never
0: left, uh, but sure, but thank you.
1: Wish you would. <laughs> All right, so it is that time again.
0: Mm-hmm. What time? Get excited time? It is, because it's time
1: for Peanut Butter History.
0: George Washington Carver was the Wizard of the Soil. George Washington Carver was the most well-known African-American of his day. During his lifetime, Carver extracted more than 300 products from the peanut.
1: There is one product that many mistakenly attribute to him, peanut butter. Butter history is our, um, shall we say, homage mm-hmm. to George Washington Carver, who didn't invent peanut butter, by the way, but he did think of hundreds of new uses for peanuts.
0: That he did. That yes, he did.
1: including, get this. I don't know if you knew this one. I, don't I know didn't many of them. until I found out. A substitute, like like a kind of substitute for asparagus.
0: Okay. I didn't know asparagus was a thing we often need to substitute.
1: I know it's interesting. Well, I mean, people put people make cauliflower in the rice and God <laughs> I don't think I don't think God would allow that. Uh,
0: yes, thank you, George Washington Carver, thank for you. that. But this segment is for all the the important people, the artists, the rabble rousers, scientists, who, scientists, thinkers, thinkers thinkers, all the people who don't get talked about as often. As George Washington Carver. Mm -hmm. We honor you today.
1: Yes. So one of those people is actually someone I am very excited to tell you all about today. She was a woman named Lucy Hicks Anderson.
0: That's a good name. That's a good name. I have not heard it before.
1: So let me give you a few details about Lucy before I get into the story. Okay. So Lucy was born in 1886 Mm -hmm. in Kentucky, just like your girl, (laughs) me. And she was assigned male at birth. But growing up, she would often ask her mother to treat her like a girl, Mm -hmm. and she wanted to wear dresses. So at age nine, her parents took her to a doctor, and according to a local newspaper interview with Lucy, the doctor told Lucy's mother that Lucy was, quote, more of a girl than a boy, unquote. Mm -hmm. The doctor said if she felt like a girl, then they should go ahead and raise her as a girl.
0: Yeah, which was which was Yeah, it's great. R- it feels feels different than w- how I would expect that conversation at that time to go. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy it happened that way. That me
1: was. too. Me too. Me too. I mean, this is like the south black person 1890s, it didn't have to go that way Damn. and fortunately it did. So, according to that same newspaper interview, Lucy said her mother told her that she was quote unquote A girl, but not like other girls. Mm. So keep in mind, at this time, no one really used the term transgender. And we don't know if Lucy would identify that way now. But she definitely identified as a woman. And so Lucy eventually grew up to be this amazing society woman and chef, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I just want to flag right here that most of what we know about her life is because she was put through this awful trial and legal battle where her entire womanhood was put up for debate. Which sucks because she clearly had this brilliant, sparkling life outside of this ridiculous trial. But it's still a part of her story that needs to be explained.
0: Yeah, let's tell her story and give her some flowers give her some flowers, exactly. So
1: the thing is, in addition to her job as a chef, Lucy owned a boarding house and she ran it as a brothel. You know, people used to do that back in the day. And the brothel would often get raided. And sometimes that was for, you know, alcohol violations during prohibition. But this one time the brothel got raided and it was because of a report of sexually transmitted disease, which Mm -hmm. was traced back to her brothel. So... This doctor came and forced all the women who worked there to go through this, like, totally dehumanizing, and invasive medical exam.
0: Wow, that's horrible.
1: Yes. Every single woman who worked there, including Lucy. Mm. So when the doctor examined Lucy, he found out about her gender history, and he outed her to the local police. Okay. Which must have just been awful. Yeah. But— Lucy lived her truth and she stood her ground throughout the entire ordeal and trial. And that is the thing we want to remember her for today.
0: I'm down with that.
1: All right. Well, I will tell you the epic story of Lucy Hicks Anderson after the break.
0: Welcome back. All right, Brittany, you have five minutes on the clock. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it.
1: Okay, so when Lucy was in her 30s, she moved west, and she married her first husband, and eventually settled in Oxnard, California, a city about 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles. And her move actually coincides with the start of the Great Migration around 1915 or so, with a lot of other Black folks moving from the south to the north and the west for more opportunities. The Black population in Oxnard was actually pretty small, and it was still a fairly segregated city, but it held more promise for Black folks like Lucy than staying in the South. So Lucy moved there to continue doing domestic work, but eventually she also became an established and beloved cook in the city. Like, at county fairs, she would regularly win awards for her fig jam, (laughs) custard pie, and rolls, which are not easy to make. It's not, trust me. They're not. So she became a major part of Oxnard's society. Like, she was basically the chef for many of the town's wealthy white families. So she was often in the local paper's society pages for hosting events. Like, she gave dramatic readings at church benefits, she held teas, and she even held receptions for weddings. She even prepared the barbecue when a well-known Catholic priest came to town. Like, she was the go-to lady. Yeah. So uh, she was, like, also, like, kind of like the toast of the town. Like, she was this really, like, regal-sounding statuesque woman. She's about six foot tall. She loved to wear hats, silk dresses, and high heels. Very Mm model-esque, you know? So Apparently, she also, like soon, me, loved to wear wigs. Uh-huh. She had three favorites. Can you imagine having so many wigs? You have three favorites.
0: I I actually literally cannot. Ha- imagine I'm it.
1: so ready. <laughs> you don't even know. Okay, so she had one long, black, wavy one, like a short, straight bob, you mm-hmm. know, like kind of kicky. Okay. And then a shoulder length. Red wig Oh. For special occasions. All right. Okay. Got to step out. So she was also known for being really generous. She gave to local charities. She sent cookies to soldiers. Wow. And she even bought war bonds to support the effort in World War II. that's sounds amazing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Rich, together, on point. Yeah.
0: All so the things. Triple threat.
1: Her, exactly. Triple threat. So her second husband was a soldier, and she would actually throw these special goodbye parties for families with young men going off to war. Wow. And like I said, she also ran a brothel, which at one point was raided, and she was forced to have a medical examination, which eventually led to the authorities charging Lucy with perjury. Basically, they said that she had, quote unquote, falsely sworn that she was a woman on her marriage application for her second husband. So in 1945, they put her whole womanhood on trial. But the amazing thing about Lucy, though, is how firmly she stood in her identity against all of this. Like, she used her language and her self-expression to undermine all of their messed up lines of questioning about gender. So, for example, there's this one exchange in the trial where the prosecutor asked her, are you a man or a woman? And she was like, I am a woman. And he was like, in what way are you a woman? And she, like, very matter-of-factly said, I am a woman internally when she was asked if her first husband was a man she was like well he's supposed to be and she constantly asserted herself through her appearance as well like when the local paper reported on what she was wearing to court because I mean like she
0: was yeah, a society was say, this figure yeah I like a, like a- like the talk of the town at at this particular moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, even though she was going to court for this trial, they were also like reporting every single day on what she wore. Like they were almost fangirling out about her outfits. Like in one report, they said she was wearing a wig and she later made them run a correction to be like, uh, no, this is actually my real hair. (laughs) You need to turn that around. She also made it super clear to everyone that she and her second husband were still happily married throughout all of this. She gave this quote to the local paper. Every week, that boy writes to me. He has told me that regardless of what all the trouble was, we are married and he loves me and intends to stay with me until death do we part. That's beautiful. Eventually, she was convicted on perjury charges and put on probation. And she did have to serve some time later for different charges. She was also told never to wear quote unquote women's clothes again. But she kept wearing the clothing that made her feel comfortable and she kept her name. And she continued trying to do good things for the community. Like, even while some of this legal stuff was going on, this woman held a democratic political rally and barbecue, urging people in Oxnard to vote. And she still managed to carve out a life for herself and her husband outside of Oxnard in Los Angeles. She lived there until her mid-60s when she died of heart complications. And I think this quote from her really sums up, like, all of her gumption. I defy any doctor in the world to prove I am not a woman. I have dressed and acted as just what I am, a woman. It's only petty maliciousness that is trying to cause me heartache and harm. If they would devote the same amount of energy to local problems that are hurting the community, it would be much better. Mm. I have lived as a good citizen for many years in this town, and I am going to die a good citizen. But I am going to die a woman.
0: Talk about it. Mike drop. So... You definitely went over, but it also definitely doesn't matter in this case, <laughs> <think> goddamn, so. <laughs> you're not going to interrupt that quote, you know what I'm saying, and not be like, a... I think you need to hurry it up. Nope. It's pretty great. Nope. I mean, the story was really powerful. It, it feels important, too. Like, we, we need to talk about these stories more. Like, people have been affirming and expressing their gender identity and living outside of rigid ideas about gender for a while now. Like, mm-hmm. this is not new, people. Mm-mm. It's just that usually, like, folks like Lucy get written out of history.
1: Mm-hmm. But not on this show. Well, Lucy Hicks Anderson, welcome to the, the peanut, peanut Butter Pantheon. 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 Peanut, Butter. Peanut, Butter. peanut Peanut, peanut. The Nod is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings and Kate Parkinson-Morgan. Our senior producer is Sada Abdurrahman. This episode was edited by Sarah Saracen. Additional editorial support from Emmanuel Berry. Fact-checking by Max Gibson. The show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music credits, visit our website, gimletmedia.com slash The Nod. And if you enjoyed this episode, check out one from the archives, Whole hog which is all about who gets to lay claim to classic Southern foods. We'll link to it in the show notes.